This is the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. Andy Payton is the lead pastor at Methodist Temple United Methodist Church in Evansville, Indiana. Randy Moore is associate pastor at Methodist Temple. Their goal is to see Christ in everything and everyone. All right. Well, this is the Pastor Podcast. I'm Randy along with Andy. And uh, Pastor Andy, it's November. It is November the 1st. Happy All Saints Day, everyone. Right, right. You might not be listening to this on the 1st, but that is when we are recording. And so, yeah, it's good to have you with us. We always start with a with a soul check-in, and, and I'll start. You know, most people know that I'm bi-vocational. And uh, in my other vocation, I'm a, I'm a news anchor and a reporter. This is election season. And my two vocations have so many similarities. Like when I'm preaching, something takes over. I hope that's the Holy Spirit. It sort of takes over. And when election season runs around, election day is like that. I mean, there's, there's no way to rehearse for what happens on election day. And so something takes over and there's an adrenaline and an excitement. And so I think that affects my soul because I like... Uh, I don't necessarily like partisan politics, but I like elections. I like <laughs> democracy. I like uh, being a part of that. And uh, as you've already said, we're recording this on November 1st. And tonight uh, at Channel 14, we are doing a virtual town hall with the three candidates for Evansville mayor. And uh, we've had people uh, through our website send in questions. That's the virtual part of the town hall. We've gone out to like Swerka and to some high schools and things like that uh, to, to get some questions. And so uh, it's one of the things I really love about um, being a journalist is that we're we're actually involved in practicing uh, the freedom that we're given in the First Amendment. In the church, we practice the First Amendment, and in journalism, we do too. And part of uh, what, what the First Amendment does for us is it makes us free, and we have that freedom uh, because we have the responsibility to inform the electorate. So I get excited about that. I'm nerdy that way too, so I'm a nerd on two, on two fronts. So that always gets my soul charged up. Well, <laughs> I wish we had a video of of you talking about election day, Randy, because you were just geeking out about uh, all the ener- energy and buzz associated right. with it, and of course there is. Like yeah. uh, election day is a big day in democracy, and yeah. And well, you brought you mentioned video. One day we will have video, right. so that's our plan for this podcast: is yeah. that one day you won't just hear our voices, you'll see our faces, and you'll see our excitement and our exaggerated gestures. <laughs> well. <laughs> One of the things that reminds me of something you said, what was it yesterday in our staff meeting? You said, currently we're doing this podcast on a shoestring via our iPhones. One day we're going to be legitimate podcasters and have microphone and video. That'll be that'll be the day. Yeah. yeah, one step at a time. But I think it was your idea, really. I mean, I had the idea to do a podcast. You've done podcasts before, but one day you just said, "Let's do it." And so, rather than say, "Okay, let's uh, go to the committees and let's you know, set a budget," let's just do it. So we've got an iPhone and in a quiet room and a computer, and and here we go. So yeah, one step at a time. But but we'll get there. So, have you talked about the condition of your soul yet? No, I was I was avoiding the condition of my soul. Um, so, my soul, um, well, the condition of my soul is actually connected to All Saints because on uh, Halloween 2020, my grandmother passed away, and that was the first major loss in our family in the last three years. And then about 18 months later, my grandfather passed away, and then of course my dad passed away in July. And I guess I woke up Halloween this year thinking about all that. Yeah. And uh, 
Um, I know that they're with God. I, I know that they're in a loving place, but it doesn't make it easy on this end of it all. Right. You, you miss them. And so my, my soul is grieving a bit. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's the condition of me right now. Yeah, my father died. Uh, we're not sure whether he died on Halloween Day or the next day. He died in his sleep. And as you know, Andy, and most people know, my first wife, Anne, uh, died before my dad did. And so my daughter, Meredith, I didn't, I didn't think we could pull this off, but my daughter, Meredith, planned a cruise for me and my three children. So we were in Mexico when my father died. And... Um, my daughter Meredith's birthday is on November 1st. So not only did my dad die while we were away mm-hmm. on Halloween, we had to celebrate Meredith's birthday with the news of my dad's death, and we were so far away. So Halloween has always been her favorite uh, holiday, and so you talk about trauma, there's the trauma of that. And let me say this about, you talked about yesterday's staff meeting, uh, you know, we talk about a surprise when you used uh, liturgy from a committal service as our devotional yesterday, which was just perfect, just perfect, right? Mm-hmm. You yeah. want to talk about that a minute? We're going to get behind right off the bat here, but I sure. think this. No. Uh, so these last few years, I, I've come face to face with grief in a way that before, quite honestly, I've never experienced before in my own life. Of course, I've walked with people in the church, but it's different when you're on the inside and it's your grandmother, your grandfather, and now my dad. And so one of the things that's happened throughout that, though, is that I have found a new appreciation for the liturgy of the church. Um, This little book that we use at funerals (laughs) has prayers in it. and, And I've used those prayers over the years, but gosh, they've been so helpful to me to put words to how to pray, what to say, give voice to what we're feeling. And the prayer that I used yesterday is one we use at our committal service. And the gist of the prayer is like, eternal God, you know, thank you for this person. Thank you for giving us this person. We give them back to you. And we trust that that part of them that's in us will continue to grow, even as they continue to grow in you, oh God. Or it, That's the gist yeah. of the prayer. And, and and that language is helpful because, like, of course my grandmother, my grandfather, my dad are all, in a sense, still with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I continue to, I would even go as far to say I continue to have a relationship with them in some sense. Now, I don't know how to explain all that, but, you know, it's not like I see my dad over there in the corner or anything like that. Like, it, But I, I continue to think about, like, well, what would he say? Like, all that kind of stuff. Like, would he tell me right now? That kind of stuff. And, right. And there's just a real a spiritual sort of connection as you do that. So anyway, yeah, yeah. I use that as a prayer for, yeah. for our, our staff. As somebody that comes from a non-liturgical background, it took me a while when I started attending a Methodist church, but now I really appreciate the liturgy mm-hmm. and that service of committal. Uh, it, there's a connection to the saints because the saints wrote it. Yeah, right. the saints wrote it. And and we're not the first ones to experience grief. And, and yeah. the church's wisdom is passed on yeah. uh, through our liturgy. And even this coming Sunday, we... Uh, celebrate All Saints Sunday, this coming Sunday, and as a part of the communion liturgy, when we get to the part where we talk about heavenly banquet every year, what we do is name the people who have passed on within the life of the church and light a candle in their memory. It's one of the most holy moments in all the liturgical year, and and it's because it's calling us into a sense of connection 
with those people that have died this past year, but beyond that, um, in our own lives. And we have a sense of connection with our, our loved ones in, in this time. And, and liturgy does that for us. It helps us to give words to it and symbol to it, ritual to it, and calls us into that, calls us into that sacred dimension. All right, good stuff. Let's jump in here. Um, we, uh, for the last many weeks now, you um, have been working on a sermon series on the 25 Articles of Religion. And again, if you're just joining us, what we normally do is we would take the text that is the subject of the sermon last week, and we uh, reflect on the text, and we reflect on the treatment of the text uh, given through the sermon. Um, but for the last many weeks, you've been going through these 25 Articles of Religion. Just a really quick, uh, quick explanation of that. Uh, John Wesley uh, handed those down as the Methodist movement grew um, in America. They were 36 with the Church of England, of which Wesley was a priest until the day he died. And so it's a, these are uh, doctrinal standards for Methodists. And so we are up to article number 14 of Purgatory. And here's the description of it uh, in the 25 articles. The Romish doctrine concerning purgatory, pardon, worshiping and adoration, as well as images as of relics, and also invocation of saints, is a fond thing, vainly invented, and grounded upon no warrant of Scripture, but repugnant to the Word of God. Wow, I, it's just really fascinating the way that builds. It almost, you know, starts very soft and gets very, very <laughs> firm at the end and a little sarcastic in the middle, or maybe just that the, the definition of the word fond is not the same today as it was then, but it's a fond thing. And we would say that that it was a nice thing, but I don't think he's saying that at all. Vainly invented and grounded upon no warrant of scripture, but repugnant to the word of God. And of course, we always have to put this in context. This was in in the context of the Protestant Reformation, and so this is why it seems so harsh. I don't think that we would have such a harsh opinion of purgatory itself today. No, this is born out of the conflict within the church of the time in which it was written, and uh, you can hear that coming through as you're, you know, just mentioned, Randy, and so... I think we have to acknowledge that, though. In fact, if you go into the uh, Methodist discipline and under the Articles of Religion, when you start getting into these specific doctrines where, quite honestly, there's an anti-Roman Catholic bias there, there's an apology attached to them like, yeah, we don't necessarily think of Roman Catholic, or Roman Catholic brothers and sisters in this way any longer. Um, right. So, so yeah, I think that's all very important to understand. But with that said, it is helpful to understand the historical context of the Protestant Reformation and how some of the theologies at play uh, continue within Christian Christianity even today. Well, something that I caught on to several weeks after you started this, because I'm kind of a black and white guy being a journalist, I thought you were going to just uh, tackle these articles head on, but you did something that's been so helpful. You've, uh, you've identified the fact that while they were written in English, it's an older English, and so the English itself has to be translated. Uh, the, the arguments uh, were different. The issues were different uh, during that day, and these documents were born out of the those struggles and those those tensions, and so you, I, I think, have just done a you know really nice job of uh, not changing the articles at all, but reinterpreting them for today. And it's absolutely necessary to do that, absolutely. And that's what they were doing. I mean, mm -hmm. they weren't just taking things that had been passed on to them without some sort of an adjustment to the needs of the time. 
Yeah, well, we'll just use the phrase Protestant Reformation, right. um, which started arguably in the year 1517. The Protestant Reformation was the reformation of the church of that time. And the church had come to a place where I would say the world was kind of ripe with change and the church was included in that. And it just kind of exploded with Martin Luther ni- nailing the 95 theses on the, the church door in Germany. And so, yeah, but everything that's said and mentioned in the articles, the doctrines of that period of time is born out of that context of we need to reform. So it should be no surprise to any of us that 500 years later, we're at another point in time where there's a lot of happening in the world. Um, Our ability to communicate has changed. Our technology has changed. In some ways, our worldviews have changed. So what does it mean to live faithfully into the gospel in our context today? And so... I've tried to take the timelessness of the articles and apply them to our context today. Yeah, very good. And you've already gotten into like the history of it. And um, you, you've started to call these sermons lectures the last couple of weeks because they do sort of sort of take that tone. But let me back up just a second and repeat something that you said that set this that set the stage for what you were going to say in this history lesson that we got. You said that uh, how we open ourselves to the presence of God individually and corporately impacts the people that we become. I'll let you comment on that, and then we'll jump into, um, you then looked at Calvinism and Arminianism. But before we do that, just the idea behind the idea, the idea that um, this impacts who we are. Yeah, the God we worship impacts who we become. And within the life of Christianity, but also in the life of other religious systems, not everyone completely agrees on who God is and what God is up to. We might be using the same language. We might be using the same terms. But the truth is, we don't always mean the same things. And what's important to kind of get at is the God that we understand in our minds as we pray and as we sing, as we hear sermons, the the God of our understanding influences the people we become. I had a professor in my undergrad who, how did he say it? Um, Stinking thinking leads to poor behavior or something like that. Like so and you can apply that to theology. If your theology yeah. is mixed up, it's gonna lead up lead to some mixed up things happening in the people, in the lives of the people. And so so yeah, uh, that's what I tried to do in this sermon this week is just talk about, look, within Christianity, and anyone that's really honest with themselves can have would have to be able to say that or admit this, that it's not really Christianity, it's Christianities. Within Christianity, there's different ways of really worshiping God, talking about God, and and therefore living into the gospel. Yeah. So you thought it was important then uh, to get at purgatory by looking at it in its context and and giving us this sort of history lesson um, about about the Protestant Reformation and the two approaches that came out of that Reformation, uh, Calvinism and Arminianism. And so it's going to make a difference what kind of people we are, whether we are Calvinistic or we are uh, we, we are followers of the Arminian. Uh, way. And you've already talked about the fact that um, in the 1500s, the world reached an inflection point. Um, the printing press uh, came along right about the same time. And then now we're mass producing the Bible. Mm-hmm. and the techno- We talk about a technological revolution today. This was a huge technological mm-hmm. re- revolution. Yeah. I, the technology changed. Um, people's access to information changed. And that led to a change in the church. And there is a huge correlation here between Protestant Reformation in the 
1500s versus our current context today, because let's be honest, our technology has changed in a big way in the last 25, 30 years with social media, cell phones, the internet, mm-hmm. our access to information has changed. And every time something like that happens, boy, there's a big change in the world and, and things get upended that we um, had grown accustomed to. And so, um, yeah, there's, there's just so much to be gleaned from this idea of the Protestant Reformation. And I will add also, to be fair to our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, they had what they called a counter-reformation too. Yes. So the Catholic Church went through a reformation as well. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned Calvinism and Arminianism, which is the two big camps within Protestant Christianity. And, and just to kind of, I don't know, explain those really quickly. Mm-hmm. I think they explain a lot about what's happening within the life of the Protestant Church today. Calvinism uh, goes back to John Calvin. Uh, John Calvin lived in the mid-1500s. And Calvin's goal was a noble one. The Protestant Reformation was just getting started. Um, A lot of the early ministers were not used to having the Bible. They had not had much theological education at that time. And so Calvin sat down and he tried to write out a systematic approach first to the creed, and then it grew into Christian theology general, and it became what was called the Institutes of of Christian Religion. And so out of that document comes Calvinism as a school of thought and a theology. And the big thing that Calvin does, though, is he sets the sovereignty of God over and against the sovereignty of the institutional church that the Protestants were leaving. And of course, the Catholic Church leading up to the 1500s had a massive amount of power. They were in charge. They were in control, especially in charge and control of the afterlife in the hearts and the minds of many of the people living in the 1500s. Well, the Protestants obviously didn't agree with that. And so Calvin's God was sovereign over and against the church that was understood to be sovereign at that time. And so uh, as it goes, um, what began as a correction to the abuses of the church of the time became an overcorrection, in my humble opinion, about the theology of the Protestant church. And so... um, Calvin's God in terms of sovereignty basically became the direct cause of everything that happens in the world. To say, in Calvin's mind, to say that God is sovereign means that basically God is in control of every single thing that happens in the world. Now, think about the implications of that. The big question became, is God the author of evil? And the logical conclusion as Calvin's followers took some of his thinking through their logical conclusions, became yes. In fact, they went on to say, God has pre-chosen some for heaven, and God has pre-chosen some for hell. And so basically what became as a correction to the church of the time um, became basic, to say it simply, I guess, God became an authoritarian, and back to the God we worship again. If our God's authoritarian, then the people who worship that God have a tendency to become an authoritarian people. All right. Hey, let me back up for just a second because um, back to Luther a little bit because we do want to talk about purgatory. You had Luther first, and then you had and then you had Calvin. And when Luther nailed the ninety-five theses theses, theses to the church door at Wittenberg, Germany, number twenty-eight had to do with the selling of indulgences. And now we can bring in purgatory here. And I, before we get past that, I do want to pick up on it. And so you could buy 
um, you could buy freedom for your uh, lost loved one waiting in purgatory by, with a donation to the church. And so uh, Theses number 28 says, as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and they were using the money. A lot of that money was going to the rebuilding of the St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, I think, is a lot of the money was being used for that. And so, but the idea, if you go back to the sovereignty of God versus sovereignty of the church here, uh, the church was understood to be the mechanism, the means through which a person entered salvation. Therefore, they had the capacity to... Uh, they had the keys. They had the keys to heaven. They had keys <laughs> to kingdom. So if you gave money to the church, then the church could say, well, your loved one is out of purgatory into heaven now. But God has that freedom. And that's what Calvin's saying. No, yeah. God, that's that's not the church's job. That's They don't... No human has that authority. Only God has that authority. And so it was, again, back to the sovereignty of God's presence over against the the sovereignty of the church. But, again, the Protestant reformers, some of them, guilty of a bit of an overcorrection here. So typical in in any arena. Uh, I wanted to back up to purgatory because, as I mentioned in previous podcasts, I teach an adult Sunday school class, and what we do is we take the sermon that we've just heard. You know, we worship at 8 o'clock. Right after 8 o'clock, we have our Sunday school hour. I teach an adult Sunday school class. What I like to do is I like to take the text from the sermon and, um, and the sermon, not to critique the sermon. We are reflecting on the sermon and on the text and you know, trying to wrestle with it a little bit and then trying to ha- see what the message of the sermon was and see if we can get that to maybe take root in our lives. And so I, I never know, though, what you're exactly going to preach on. And while I knew that you're not going to just take purgatory and define purgatory word for word, that's not what you've been doing with this, but not knowing what you were going to do with it exactly, we were looking at purgatory. And as I looked at it, and I'm not going to have it in front of me right here, but so I took a look at um, a Catholic website. It was Catholic Answers. What is purgatory? And I was kind of, I was kind of surprised. Um, you know, there was a, I told the Sunday school class, I said in my, in my lesson, I said, there's a golf course in Hamilton County, Indiana. It's called Purgatory Golf Club. And I said, with my level of golf, uh, Purgatory Golf Club sure felt like a way station to hell to me. Mm-hmm. But then I thought, you know what, that's really not that really doesn't match what purgatory is. Purgatory is not this holding place and that's either thumbs up or thumbs down. Purgatory is a place of purification, um, of, of perfection. And so there's actually mercy uh, in that. I think sometimes as Protestants, you talk about an overreaction. I think sometimes Protestants can caricature some some uh, Roman Catholic doctrines, and while I'm not going to say no, I'm all, I'm all about um, you know purgatory or this place that's purgatory. The idea behind it is a sound one, and it hit me that it sounds a lot like Wesley's uh, doctrine of Christian perfection because he too, I believe, thought that when we finally come face to face with God, there's the presence now, of course, but when we finally come face to face with God. We have to come pure. Mm. And so that's why he believed that God would make us perfect, even if it's at the instant of death. So there's actually, a, I think, a relationship between purgatory and perfection. Yeah, I mean, one version of it is in the afterlife, and yeah. we're applying it to this life. And when yeah. it's applied, applied to this life, absolutely. We're all, if you're really taking the spiritual quest seriously, we're all in a purifying process maybe a, a better way to describe it would be 
Um, as we grow in our spiritual quest, we go through a healing process in which we become more whole. And uh, I think that's a better way even to talk about the idea of salvation. What is salvation? Well, a um, modern way to think about salvation is, is wholeness, right? And so, yes, um, we all have our own wounds and we've done these things um, that we're proud of and we've had we're not so proud of and and we've also had things that happen in our life that's hurt us. And so as we grow closer and closer to God, the idea is there'd be some sort of purgatory, purging, purifying process to that. Yeah, something that matters today. That's really good stuff. Okay, uh, we're into it, so we got to talk about it. The later Calvinists, and I think that's important too, um, John Calvin didn't come up with tulip. Uh, uh, the later uh, Calvinists and the and the followers always are, they're a little more hardline than the founder of the idea, yeah. but they came up uh, with tulip yeah. as a way to explain Calvinism. Yeah, it's an acronym that's used for the what they call the five points of Calvinism, and so T stands for total depravity, um, U stands for unconditional election, L uh, stands for limited atonement. I is irresistible grace, and P is perseverance of the saints. And so the idea here, though, is we're totally depraved. We could do nothing but sin except for God's help. Um, unconditional election is this notion I already alluded to. God has preordained some for heaven, some for hell. Again, remember, uh, the sovereignty of God means, in the Calvinistic worldview, everything that happens happens for a reason, and the reason is God. God's the orchestrator of all things. Um, limited atonement is the notion then Jesus really just died for the people who were chosen. Irresistible grace connects with the sovereignty of God again. Uh, God is the pilot. And so if a person becomes a Christian, it's because God made them become a Christian. And perseverance of the saints is basically refers to the idea that um, because God is the pilot of a person's life, they're always going to end up being, being faithful. And so... That's a hard line type of theology, really. And of course, um, as the things evolve within the life of the church, there begins to become what I would describe as a course correction uh, to this idea. Um, and that course correction comes from another pastor by the name of Jacob Arminius, which is where we get Arminian theology. Um, and Sunday morning after worship, people said, I thought you were talking about the country, Armenia. I or, thought you were going to spell that out because people get confused about they, that. They're very, no, it's, it refers to the last name of a, of a yeah. pastor. And Jacob Arminius really quickly um, was a, a very popular pastor from Amsterdam, lived in the late 1500s, early 1600s. And he was uh, tasked with the responsibility of they wanted him to defend Calvinism, actually, against some of the people who were asking some questions at that time. And he begins to study the church tradition. He begins to study the biblical text. And what Arminius basically decides and comes comes to realize, really, in his own mind, is that no reputable teacher or Bible student really ever believed these kinds of things that Calvinism had begun to, began to, ta- to teach. And so um, rather than God being the orchestrator of all things, basically what Arminius decides is that God has given us the this idea of free will, and we have freedom. And so people are free to choose um, to enter into a relationship with Christ or not. And so we're not preordained, really. Um, we can freely choose. And that basic starting point takes us to a much different direction. God's sovereignty is used to give people freedom, and just that basic idea means think about 
the people that we become, if that's the God in which we worship. If God works to give people freedom, then we work to protect people's freedom. And even that, if that means that we don't necessarily agree with them, even if we don't see eye to eye with them, um, if this is a guy we worship, this is the kind of thing that we're trying to create within the world. You have the Calvinistic God over here that's authoritarian, and you have the Arminian God over here, which is about free will and freedom. Um, two much different starting points with two much different endings. Now, one quick thing about Arminius's worldview, it's not really like free will in the sense that everything goes. Right. Arminius believed that we live in a moral universe. And so while God has given us freedom and we can make choices, what we're not free to do is to determine the consequences of those choices. Some choices, to use an analogy, lead towards heaven, and some choices lead towards hell. And of course, it, the choices that lead towards heaven are the ones that are obedient to God. The one that leads towards hell are the ones that are going against the grain about what God desires for us as people made in the image of God. And of course, again, the, the answer becomes, what does obedience look like? And it's Jesus. He is the ultimate expression of obedience, author and perfecter of our faith as Christians. And so the idea here, though, again, is as we become more and more obedient to Jesus, um, then we grow more and more confident in our walk with God, and we can feel ourselves in Arminius' worldview um, growing in our love for God and other people. But it's much more dynamic. Let's bring in uh, free will again as a way of introducing John Wesley because John Wesley had something to say about free will too. It wasn't that he believed so much in free will, but in free grace, that we don't have, we don't have a will to choose God without God's grace, okay? So let's bring in Wesley again because Wesley, while, uh, while he wasn't Calvinist, was a Calvinist like um, Arminius, um, and the name got tagged on him, being an Armenian, got tagged on him, and he just sort of owned it. In fact, you mentioned this too, that um, he had a magazine called Armenian Magazine. So Wesley agreed. Yeah, Wesley was, I would I described him in my sermon as like a Jacob Arminius groupie. Like yeah. he was all about him, uh, and he had the magazine uh, called The Arminian. And Wesley spent a lot of time debating with the Calvinist of his time. And to be fair to the Calvinist, there's a very... A good biblical argument for Calvinism. Uh, you, you could go through the New Testament especially and find argument for Calvinism in the New Testament. But Wesley believed that it did not fit with the character of God that we see in Jesus Christ, which is what, in his mind, leads to more of an Arminian theology. And one of his big things is free grace for all and free grace in all. That's, that's a Wesley idea. Yeah. And the notion here is that um, freedom happens really as we become aware of God's presence and live in cooperation with God's presence. And the more and more obedient we become to that love of God, uh, the more and more free we become. And so it's not freedom in the sense that anything goes. It's, it's freedom that comes through faith, really. Okay, let's try to wrap this up. And I'm going to paraphrase uh, some of your final thoughts from your sermon, and then we'll do a little preview of next week. Um, you said uh, there are three ways that Calvinism and Arminianism play out today. One uh, would be in the idea of thoughts and prayers, right? We hear that a lot. And so under Calvinism, uh, you're just praying that you hope that, that God intervenes because that's the only thing that's going to affect anything is that if God intervenes. And if he doesn't, well, that was God's will. Arminianism, on the other hand, says, you know, we ask God for the moral energy to do something about the thing that we are 
praying about and thinking about. A second way is through faith, and under Calvinism, faith is an end, and under Arminianism, faith is a means to an end. And then finally, number three, as it concerns human beings under Calvinism, human beings are horrible, they're awful, they're totally depraved, and under Arminianism, uh, human beings bear the image of God. Well, I think that's a great summary. Yeah, um, faith as it ends and, and faith as a means is a, is a important distinction between the two. When faith becomes the end, then it becomes all about having the right answer. When faith is a means, then it becomes about really the right heart and the right life, an obedient life. And so I think those two distinctions are very helpful. But overall, Randy, yeah, that's the big difference. If freedom is, is real, then some things are going to happen or not happen based upon our choice. And we can't simply just wash our hands of some of the problems in our world today and say, well, God's just going to take care of it. Well, maybe the re- way God is trying to take care of it is through us. And so when we use like things like thoughts and prayers and other, other phrases like that, if we're not careful, our theology might be letting us off the hook of something that quite honestly God is calling us to do something about. And so the biggest issue to me, though, with the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism has to do with how it frames the way we see our lives. If we're totally depraved, then life is held in a sense of suspicion, mm-hmm. in a sense. If we are made in the image of a loving God, then life is held as a sacred gift. And of course, it's going to change the way we treat ourselves, our neighbor, and the world around us. And so um, these are two very big camps within Protestant Christianity, two very different starting points with two very different endings. And anyone listening to this, I would say, search your heart and ask yourself which one fits closer to Jesus. And yeah. I'm biased, but I'm in Camp Arminian here. So Right. Me too. And speaking of questions, if you have any questions, we're always looking for questions. I mean, this is a conversation, but we'd love to have you join in on the conversation. We talked about the development of the broadcast. One day that'll be possible for you to call in. But even now, send us a, send us a question. We're going to wrap this up because we're trying to finish it up in uh, about 30 minutes, and so we're a little bit over. But uh, we're going to look forward to next week, and we're going to make it quick because I noticed already that I've made a mistake in my notes. I'm going to be preaching on the 12th, and I was thinking that's uh, by the time we do the podcast, that was going to be next. It's not. Uh, the 5th is the next, not the 12th. Uh, but as a preview, I'm going to be preaching on 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. So you get a, a nice long look at that passage before we get to it the week after next. And Andy, I don't know what the next article is. Do you? Yeah, I know. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It continues down the line of some of the anti-Roman Catholic bias. And so last week was purgatory. This coming week is going to be an article that basically talks about how it's important to use the language that people understand when you're in worship. And uh, Speaking in tongues? No, speaking <laughs> speaking in Latin, technically. Okay. Yeah, so it, it's a pot shot against the Roman Catholic Church again, unfortunately. Yeah. And because if you understand that context of the 1500s when Catholics would gather for worship, worship was in Latin. Yeah. And so this article very, very specifically addresses that practice and says, no, it's important that you use the vernacular, the language of the people. And so what the, I'm going to do in my sermon this weekend, though, is um, build on one of Wesley's comments. He says, plain truth for plain people is his goal. And so what he was trying to do is share the faith in a way in which people can understand. And so I'm going to just try to really simplify. So what is it that we're talking about when we talk about the spiritual quest? 
how can we learn from the secular world about that spiritual quest? And where does that correlate with our language as Methodist as well? And so my sermon this weekend is a miniature of what I've been doing up to this point, really. Um, how do I speak in a way that people can understand today when it comes to their relationship with God? And it's important for that to happen. We'll look forward to that. As you've already mentioned, it is All Saints Sunday. We will be lighting a candle for those in our community who have passed since last All Saints Day. And that's always special. I, I like it a lot. I like it a lot. You'll be thinking a lot about your dad and your grandparents. I'll be thinking a lot, a lot about my loved ones who have, who have gone on. And it, it's just a nice service. And something else will happen, I think. Pastor Andy, when his father died, as he was going through his father's things, he found a robe that um, they needed a place to live. And so Andy gave me the robe. And it's, it's spent some time with the tailor, with the seamstress, to, uh, to make it fit. But I think it might be appropriate to wear that for the first time on, on Sunday. I'll be wearing that robe, which is a gift from Pastor Andy to me. And um, local licensed pastors, they can wear robes, and, uh, you know, but I typically haven't. It's, you know, but this will be nice. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be a nice touch. So, so this Sunday's going to be fun. Yeah, it's a... We'll see if I can get through it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's a very meaningful service, um, which uh, can impact us in a very deep way as we think about the folks that have come before us. Yeah. So I think it's great that you have uh, my dad's robe, though. That's pretty cool. So. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be a special day. Hey, join us if you want to. If you if you don't have a home church somewhere, we'd love to see you here at, at Methodist Temple in Evansville. Um, we also worship virtually at, at uh, 8, uh, 30, and 11. And so uh, worship with us that way, or you're more than welcome to come see us. But uh, we love you, and uh, we appreciate you listening. And we will talk to you again next week. This has been the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. You are welcome to join us at Methodist Temple in person or online. Methodist Temple is at 2109 Lincoln Avenue in Evansville, Indiana. Our traditional Sunday morning worship service is at 830 with our contemporary service at 11. Log on to our website at methodisttemple.church. We see Christ in you.